in the world of cyberpunk, you have people voluntarily cutting off their limbs to replace them with robotic replacements that are superior. Yeah, I was about to say probably because they're stronger. Yeah. So, for instance, like someone's got bad knees, instead of replacing the knees, let's replace the legs and jump like five stories up. Someone uh, wants to replace their hand with one that's got like a lot of uh, utility devices on, like screwdrivers, whatnot. Maybe they're a mechanic and need a bunch of cool tools in their hand, stuff like that. You have people putting like uh, the, a super high tech version of what old Papa Elon Musk wants to do with the Neuralink and have like these overlays that you basically have a smartphone built in your brain. Is there a, is there a biblical like opinion to be had on that like is that wrong Does you ask that... any traditionalist they'll say it's the mark of the beast true like is that interfering with the whole body as a temple thing <sighs> i think <laughs> i mean i doubt this is a this, be a this concern is a... with their lifetimes but if the world is still here in like another 150 years i'd say that it'll probably be a thing 150 is probably conservative guess, I, I would, yeah i mean this is obviously obviously a big ethical dilemma Oh that, yeah, uh, I mean, it's, uh, we're it's not a little there more yet. Than cold open. I'm kind of like coming out as more of a joke, but yeah. See, I, I think it, it can be a double edged sword because I mean, what's the difference of? Uh, well, there there is a difference between getting the hip replacement and getting your cataracts and yeah. and getting glasses of all things. I mean, fixing your eyesight with lenses. You know, that's something that even though it's external, it can be taken off and on and stuff like that. But I mean, it is somewhat improving upon what has already been placed upon you, but. The thing is, though, hacking up off a perfectly good arm for a switchblade, I mean, there's nothing. There, you're, you're losing something that there was nothing wrong with to begin with. Now, if, so if my arm blew off and then during like a, a an explosion or something, and then put that switchblade on, I mean, I see no problem with that. But yet, removing something that's perfectly functional to place something else entirely—that that to me, I think that's more of an ethical. We just want wrist rockets, man. Watch out for those wrist rockets. rockets. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Cross Training, where we look at faith and practice through a biblical lens. We're your hosts. I'm Matthew Thompson. I'm Tanner Higgins. I'm Mason Simmons. And buddy, it's it's. I don't know about y'all, but I feel like we hit the ground running last episode. Like it, it didn't feel like there was any rust to shake off. Like we just got into it, and it was fun. Fun. Insert the the SpongeBob song for fun. F here is for it, friends who do stuff together. Uranium bomb. Are we going to get copyrighted? Probably. <laughs> We're going to get uh, shadow banned right now. Mm. No, but it I it was just so good to to be back. Like I I loved getting into uh, conversation with you guys uh, about scripture. It was just overall a really fun time, but. It's still just a very different experience, and I know we've covered this a little bit already, so I won't spend too much time on it, but going from doing that long, um, really in-depth read-through of John to doing yeah. topical discussion, it, it, it really is a different beast, like getting your uh, mind into that headspace. Because for one, uh, when we're doing more topical episodes, it's not like there's a bunch of stuff already there for us to to read, you know? Like when we're reading through John, I mean, obviously we have the text of the book of John to read through. When we're doing uh, topical, like subject uh, matter specific uh, podcast episodes, like we we have to write this stuff out. There's more study work involved, so you really have to put your brain into a different gear. So with that said, as we said at the the end of last episode two weeks ago, we're going to be talking about some not so Christian Christian catchphrases, and there were some air quotes on that second uh, Christian there. And I will be 100% bluntly honest with y'all. I was a little uh. 
iffy about this subject. Out of all the uh, the subjects that we want to cover uh, this season on cross training, like looking through our, our list that we that we brainstormed over the break, th- this was one I was like, I can't, is that really going to be like a really good episode, or is it, or is this one that we're going to like record and be like, yeah, that wasn't our best? But man, I'm I'm impressed with all of us, myself included. <laughs> like we got some good discussion uh, material here. I think this is going to be a, a good episode, and I. I have a feeling it's gonna, it's gonna teach me. Yeah, and I think uh, my dad he said he's he said this before. Um, you know, very wise man, even though he's different. <laughs> <laughs> I love him, but he's different. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, one thing he's he's told me about uh, when it comes to scripture and talks about is that it has one interpretation but many applications, and I think that is. Pretty accurate, and I think here that we've taken unbiblical catchphrases or catchphrases that basically people have abused <laughs> and contorted th- to their own wants, needs, and desires. That their application is quite faulty. You know, there's an application, there's an interpretation of what Scripture says, and there's some Christianese and some kind of Christian aspect in all these phrases. But yet, we got to debunk some of them, or at least discuss them, at least. Yeah. Which I challenged myself when I was thinking, like, what? Because we each picked three. Uh, I wanted one of mine to be one that sounded stupid but has a dangerous mindset behind it. Like I think I've that, got you beat. Well, That's true. And, and the thing is, I was going to say, like, the two of you also uh, did the same thing, whether you meant to or not, I think, where there are phrases that have just kind of been beaten into the ground so much that we look at them and we're like, oh, that's just harmless stupidity. But there are really heretical mindsets behind a lot of these phrases uh, that you're going to hear. So without further ado, let's, I mean, let's dive right into it. We're going to uh, stay bolted tight to Scripture throughout all this because uh, we were talking before we hit record about how this is the sort of subject where we easily could just get into, like, tirades of, like, I don't like this phrase because I don't like this phrase, and here are my reasons for me not liking this yeah. phrase. Like, if, we, if there's going to be any relevance, it's got to be tied to Scripture. So we're going to be definitely going back and forth between um, just kind of reasoning out like why this why this particular catchphrase, uh, if that's what we're calling them, is bad, but then also going back to Scripture be like, hey, there's a scriptural basis for why this is bad and leads to a bad uh, theological mindset. So let's start it off. Who wants to go first? <laughs> I mean, we all, we all got some of it. Raise your hand, boys. Come on. Well, Mason's got the fewest syllables in the episode so far, so how about you start us off, though? I was really confused what you meant by then. I was like... I have some pretty long catchphrases. What do you mean? And then I was like, oh, I haven't talked anything. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go a little bit out of order of how I sent y'all in the text. I'm going to start with uh, what is probably the middle one that you guys have uh, wrote down just because it's a little loose. It's a little dumb. It's actually really dumb. It's probably the dumbest one I think I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> Give it to us. <laughs> I, ain't, I ain't kidding. And here it is. If we don't sin just a little bit, Jesus died for nothing. You might remember that from the end of our last episode. Yeah, I let it slip a little bit last week, and I just got to think, man, how stupid is this? So this first came up to me uh, on a TikTok about a year ago, like during quarantine and stuff, families are all together, and there's like this girl, and they're trying to get their dad's reaction, of course, and like just bolts it out, and you can see her dad just like, look and disappointment shake his head and just be like put it down and whatever and like it's meant to be a funny video and like granted like it can be but the sad part is there's actually some christians christians i throw that up with air quotes like matthew said earlier that will actually kind of have this mindset and use it as an excuse for like oh like 
I, I did wrong. I sinned a little bit, but it's okay because, I mean, that's why Jesus came here was to forgive our sins. Like, if we don't sin a little bit, Jesus was here for nothing. Yeah. On its surface, like, that's just cringe. pure stupidity. It makes like, me cringe, man. It, it's so dumb that, like, I mean, like I said, I was kind of inspired to find my own quote that sounded like that and that, like, I want to just disregard it because it sounds so dumb. But I think there's a very dangerous mentality behind that that I think people have without believing uh, that they're following that quote, if that makes any sense. I think there's lots of people out there that are very flippant about their sin, that are very flippant about their wrongdoings, because they do have that thought in the back of their head, be like, well, you know, Jesus died for my sins. He, God forgives, so we're, we're all right. It's, it's like those cliche tattoos, like, only God can judge me, That kind of that same mentality there. It sounds super Did we dumb. Did that one down? Only got no. That's not on there. We're gonna bring up some uh, honorable mentions. Changing one of mine, or we might talk about that later. I don't know. That one irritates the fire. Well, that's. I mean, it's got the same energy behind it. I think. God only judges. When you read it, like shoot, why why not? Changing. We're gonna do a a audible right here on the show. No, but you read those quotes and it's so easy to just kind of laugh it off. It's like, oh, that's just being dumb. But I think the mentality behind that is a real thing and it's a real infection within the church. And I think that more people ascribe to that theology without realizing it than we think. Well, you know how they'll hide behind it? They'll say we're human. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're yeah. human. Like it, we sin. It's part of it. Jesus came to forgive our sins. That's like, to me, that's how I'm, how I picture a lot of it because I'm, I'm a human. I'm guilty of thinking the same things a lot of time. Like, oh, I'm a human. I, I'm going to mess up. But that's just an excuse to mess up even more. Yeah. Now, as for a, a scriptural backing behind uh, going against this, I don't know if you had anything in particular you wanted to bring up, Mason, but kind of what I had in mind for that, the most famous piece of scripture of all time, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The mentality behind that, if we don't sin, Jesus died for nothing, misunderstands the purpose behind the crucifixion 100%. Because if that's really like the mindset you're going to have, whether conscious or unconsciously, A, you don't understand who Jesus is, or B, you are disregarding who Jesus is. Because, I mean, that what could be more disrespectful to the crucifixion than to treat it as a cop-out? And also, too, I mean, we're called to be holy. We're called to be righteous. We're called to be like Christ. And in that sense, and then we're placing, if Jesus died for nothing, you know, why not send a little, you know, allow Jesus to die for something? That's making cheap grace out of his death and his resurrection. And that's showing that it's like, okay, well, you know, whatever, Jesus. I mean, he died anyway, so I mean, I might as well just make that blood just drip a little bit further. I mean, that's a disgrace. And and I, I wouldn't, I would like to say, I know that <clears throat> we said that, you know, that sometimes we play, place this theology um, haphazardly, but yeah, I don't. I would like to say that any logical thinking Christian would not would never say this, but yet sometimes a cultural Christian will place this as a uh, ideology upon their lifestyle for sure. Yeah, that's why I was saying like it's more the the mentality behind it that I'm tackling rather than the quote itself. Because honestly, I think the average person that says this quote word for word is not a believer. Like. No Christian worth their salt is going to be able to get that sentence out of their mouth without coughing up a lung of pure conviction. Because, yeah. I mean, that's that's just absolute crap from the beginning. But, again, I do believe that there is a mentality underneath that that is very real and isn't called out enough. I, th- I think it's uh, a very w- real problem that needs to be addressed and can be addressed simply with, like, how our relationship with Christ should be. There should be that respect there. Be like, oh, you 
sent you, you, you came to earth to die for me. I'm not going to take that lightly. The least, the literal least I can do for you, God, is try not to sin. To be like you, is to, to live like you, yeah. and to I mean, love like you. And obviously, we're going to fall. Like the, yeah. I mean, that's that's established in Scripture. Paul points it out in Galatians um, that that we're going to fall. Like our flesh by nature is is going to fall. But dang it, we're going to try not to. I went back and found a little bit of Scripture that goes back with it. And it was one that actually our pastor used a couple of weeks ago in one of his sermons in Ephesians 5. Uh, we talk, we hear Paul talking about all the different uh, sins going on within the Ephesian church, you know, the fornication, the idolatry, uh, the adultery, all those other things. But near the end of uh, when he's listing these, in the beginning of mm-hmm. uh, Ephesians 5, he says uh, in verse 6, this is where the, the it really hits hard at, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So I think when people are, trying to say this about Christ, like, oh, he died for a little bit. They're using a lot of empty words. They're missing the big picture. And the wrath of God is kind of going to rain down on that, <laughs> I feel like. All right, so we're off to a good start. I'll do, I'll do one of my quotes next. I won't, I won't do my spiciest one. I'll save that one uh, for last. But uh, one, this was actually the one that I looked up as a result of having that, uh, that being challenged by, by Mason's quote there, if we don't send Jesus died for nothing, I was wanting to, to find one that sounded ridiculous to me, that almost like I didn't want to contradict or, or, or challenge because it just felt like you know, it's not worth the time. But here we go. The quote that I picked, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Now, I know most people hearing that are going to think that's, I mean, that's not in the same league as the one that Mason picked. I'm aware of that. It's not, it's not on its face stupid. Like, I'm not saying that this phrase is dumb from the get-go. I mean, honestly, like, I would argue for it before I would argue against it. But I think that there is a dangerous mentality behind it that needs to be tackled. That's the similarity that I'm talking about here. And the bit of scripture that I want to kick off with before I start getting into why I think this uh, quote has some danger behind it is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 36. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And, of course, it's followed up by Jesus giving the, the greatest commandment, which I'll be bringing up for one of my other quotes as well. So the mentality that I want to tackle that I think is behind this quote more often than people probably assume, because, again, this, this quote on its face is, is kind of harmless, because obviously if you're, studying, if you're studying Scripture, like more often than not, you've probably got a decent relationship with God if you want to, to seek out His Word, seek out knowledge through His Word. But I think a lot of people get a little too close to worshiping the words, the words on the page. Not the Word as in the Word of God, but the words as in... I don't know, the law, like the Pharisees were back in the day. I mean, that's what uh, what was happening there with them saying, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Because during Jesus' time, like you had the Jewish elite where they swore by God's law, but they didn't swear by God. There was no love for God, but instead there was a love for the ability to put themselves above others because of these these laws that they had memorized and, and set in stone. And I mean, they were set in stone, and they were worth memorizing, don't get me wrong, but they were worshiping the words with, with the S on the end of there. I don't know how well that is coming through in the microphone, but they're worshiping the words on the page rather than the word that the words are in, if that makes any sense. And I think that that's a, 
a big issue these days, especially with people arguing over things as simple as like, which version of the Bible are you reading? What, 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 is, what does that text say in the original Greek? Like, what, what, what does it really say? Like, people get into just the worst arguments over just little words. You, you have entire denominations built off of, like, a misreading or um, an alternative understanding of one piece of Scripture. Like, for instance, uh, I can't remember. The, the word for the, the belief doesn't come to mind because it's got, like, 16 syllables in it. But <laughs> there's a, a term for, like, believing that when Jesus said, this, uh, this cup is, is my blood, believing that that's literally turning into blood in your system. Transubstantiation. Trans yeah. Tran yeah, thank you. There you go, 16 syllables. <laughs> I probably didn't even say it right. Yeah. And obviously, like, that's kind of a, a Catholic concept, uh, but I think there are a couple of denominations within, like, our sect of uh, a belief that uh, believe that as well. And, I mean, that's a pretty mainstream example but i mean there are plenty of others because i mean there's as many denominations as one can number as there is sand on the beach so the whole idea that like i mean god's word is great it's crucial to our belief system to to learn about who god is but they are words on a page and they don't need to be worshiped See, I'm going to rebuttal a little bit. Just I'm going to hey, just I, I'm going to push I know back. that's kind of a I'm controversial one to trash talk so i understand I'm going to so push hit back me with a little it. bit because this phrase says nothing about Christ or the Christian belief. This is a Judeo-Christian system within Scripture, okay? So the phrase is that a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone that is not. So if you take this, how many within, how, within our society, we, ha, we are saturated with Judeo-Christian beliefs within our justice system, within our societal norms in, in that sense. So in that in this case, it says nothing about our faith, says nothing about anything, but yet more of the life that is being presented. So you look at Scripture, yeah, there's a lot of law, a lot. What did you say? How many laws are there? Was 613. 613. And then you've got the law of Christ. Let's just take away the aspect. So we'll go to uh, an I completely disagree, but the Jefferson Bible, where the Jefferson Bible, Thomas Jefferson took the New Testament and took away, he basically took a knife, a scalpel or scissors or whatever, and cut out every bit of the mystical part of Christ, you know, him doing miracles, him walking on water, him raising again on the third day, all the things that make him God and, and give proof and evidence to him God, and took those out and just took and kept the moralisms behind Christ. What's one of the things that he says? Love thy neighbor as thyself. That's a good law. And to me, to be honest, if you're studying that and you're studying what Christ says, take away the, the, the supernatural part and you place that upon anybody's life, either a Christian or not a Christian, that's going to be helpful for them for, not, for them to not be falling apart. So I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that at all because Jesus, that's half of it. Jesus says to love God first with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love thy neighbor as thyself. So it's a twofold thing. I think you may mention that earlier. So I disagree I disagree that it's a bad saying, but yet I agree that it is it is used to an extreme to make excuses. Yeah. And I agree with that rebuttal. I mean, like I said, it's the mentality behind it that uh, I think can can rear its ugly head. I mean, it reared its ugly head during Jesus' time and was yeah. addressed within Scripture. Yes, exactly. Uh, because I think that people can very easily look to—and this isn't even exclusive to, like, biblical study. Like, for instance, someone can just be really into praying. 
There's nothing wrong with praying. Praying is crucial to maintain a healthy relationship with God. But if that's literally all you do, there's going to be some... Any lack of balance in your relationship with God is going to cause some issues, whether you are aware of it or not. I mean, it's like how we discussed discussed a last episode with theology. If you don't get into it, I mean, sure, you'll you'll have a relationship with Christ. But I think Mason, you said like if you want to be a good Christian, if you want to really like get an intimate relationship with God, I believe Tanner, you said that like you're missing out on a lot that you don't know that you're missing out on. Like you have to have that balance between all different forms of worship, all different forms of communication with, uh, with God to have a truly good, healthy relationship. So just drilling into the Bible 24 seven, like obviously there's, I mean, you can learn from scripture. You can commune with God through scripture, but if you're going to let scripture become your replacement for God, that you're going to idolize the Bible, which is entirely possible. I mean, it still to this day sounds weird saying that sentence, but it is entirely anything that you are idolizing above God is is a false God. You can turn the Bible into a false God 100 percent. That's what the Pharisees did. So I'm, I'm not going to rant on any more than that because I've, I've got my piece out. But that's that's my opinion. We would also encourage you, listener elects to <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah we're still doing that okay. uh we, we encourage you if you disagree with us uh contact us you know and and scream at us if you would like send the hate mail send the, the caps mail. lock yeah so uh my first one uh i think i've heard christians and non-christians alike use this term and i think that a lot of it's just a misunderstanding my quote is we're all children of god throw up <laughs> Don't vomit in your mouth. I want to. So I think this statement, I believe, is mostly misquoted and misunderstood by believers. I think it is used, and, I, and I've heard of, heard, it, heard it used several times, but the premise behind this is that the statement is that God is specially or divinely connected to all of creation, especially to humanity. There's a special connection that God has with them. And there are some who would also use this to affirm a universalistic salvation plan, which is universalism, that everyone that has ever existed and will exist will go to heaven. And we're all children of God, you know. And so this could be a possible um, quote to affirm universalism. So the big question is, does the Bible say that we're all children of God? The short answer is no, it does not. So, and this is where I think this is where I think people kind of take two different verses and sections in scripture and contort it to fit this uh, phrase. So the first one, I believe that this is being confused with God's statement in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, where G, where God says, let us make man in our image. Okay, so the Hebrew for image is only a likeness, correct? A likeness. So not a copy of one, you know, copy and paste that has equivalent abilities and one who is made in that image it is basically a likeness. So just imagine God as like a painter and he paints a little bit of his characteristics in himself into the painting, but yet the painting is not himself. It just reflects kind of a attributes of that painter, correct? So that's what we are. All of cre- all of creation, all of God, or all of creation, all of humanity is a image, is a likeness of God, but is not a child of God. So the children of God can be seen by two different lenses in the context within Scripture. You see the first one that the children of God through the Old Testament is the Israelite nation, because we see them that God has used them and blessed them in a way so that Christ can come, and so they've been that that statement, children of God, has been used in the Old Testament in the Israelite nation context. The part where I think this is where it's the most accurate 
is in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and seven, fourteen through 17, that I think the, cont- the context that is most pertinent uh, to the children of God is in this. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, it says that for all who is led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption. So this is where this whole statement comes into play. Children of God, those that follow Christ are now adopted. Okay, so by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, a very intimate relationship with God, an intimate relationship with saying, Daddy God. So, verses 16, the Spirit himself testified together for our spirit that we are God's children. So the Spirit is the one that unifies us with God, saying that we are his children. And if children also err, so we are co-heirs with Christ to gain eternal life and to be with the Father forever, that we have that ability to call him daddy, you know, in that sense. So heirs to God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. So the statement, I think, isn't controversial. I mean, to me, this is really clear-cut statement of like, okay, yeah, we're not all children of God, but those that choose to follow Christ— are called the children of God. So I think the, there needs to be a rephrasing of this, is that only through Jesus are we children of God. I mean, if I'm being 100% honest, I had never heard this phrase before, nor was I aware that it was used um, to kind of further the idea of universalism. But yeah. I heard that Mason seems to have a pretty big problem with it, so I'd, I'd like to hear his view on this, because I'm, I'm kind of learning as we go on this phrase. Okay, yeah, no, I have a big problem with it. One, because in my main one... Is the universalism? So many well, people would use it for what, exactly what Tanner said that we are all born, made of God. We're all His creation. We're all going to heaven. My dog's going to heaven. My cat's going to heaven. My hamster, you, me, everybody. So I want to put a little caveat on my personal. This is my opinion, but yeah, I'm not a universalist. But what I am is that I'm a hopeful universalist. Uh, look at this guy. He listens to Preston Sprinkle. So what I mean by that is that I don't believe uh, Scripture does not teach that everyone gets in the grace and embrace with God. It doesn't teach that. But I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. I hope that everyone has a chance and everyone will become uh, a child of God in that sense. But yet Scripture doesn't teach that. Absolutely not. And that's my biggest thing is what you brought up about uh, where Paul teaches like Paul said, you got to have the Holy Spirit to be a child because without that, you're without hope. And I, like you said, I, I would like for everybody, you know, born of woman, born of man to, on this earth to go to heaven. The sad reality of it is that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. You know, unless you go ask your Mormon, that's going to go get you out of the spirit world or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> unless you're thinking something like that. No hate no. towards the Mormons. We, See, I, 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 I want to discuss with them too. Let's yeah, not, let's that's not true. Them out. This, this is a <laughs> open table discussion. Uh, but I've heard more non-Christians use this term than Christians. Oh, to be honest. Uh, uh, and this is just a. It sounds well, Christian-like, but it's not actually Christian. I have heard some other specific denominations will use this. Like we're all Christians, and I think this is where I could be wrong. This is just kind of what I've pieced together myself. So. I mean, some people might have heard and thought the same things. It's normally the denominations that say that they're the only ones going to heaven will say we are all 
children of God, speaking of everyone that has the same beliefs as well, them. I, then I'll take that back then, because I know there's songs that we sing on Sunday morning, like, uh, uh, we're children of God. I've heard, I've heard that statement. So, I mean, as long as you remove that we are all children of God, or at least you specify who is all. And a lot of these phrases that we say, a lot of them you kind of have to clarify. Like It's very vague in the sense, and if you make it so vague, you can take it to an extreme that it's unbiblical and wrong. So in that sense, yeah, we're all children of God, but yet what's that context like? We're children of God to those that believe and follow Christ. Yes, but we're not all children of God. Context is key. Just like Context scripture. is key. Context is key. All right, here's one of my three Number two, that this is probably the one that I'm going to like completely just flat out disagree with. You know, uh, the other two, like the first one, uh, it's just kind of like, eh. My last one's kind of like, eh. This one I just fell out of it flat out against. And it's Satan is after or Satan is tempting and trying me. You know, Satan himself, the key word himself is after me. And I have heard a lot of Christians say that when they are going undergoing temptations and stuff like that they would say satan himself is out to get me do you guys want to give it a little opinion or do you want to just keep going on my little rant i would i would tend to agree there's many reasons why i would tend to agree that you're correct that's my back i would tend to not like this statement <laughs> yeah 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 i tend I, but there's like two reasons why but yeah, continue on matthew anything well i want to well, I, I don't want to steal your thunder. You, you give you give the introductory argument. I'll I'll support because I have strong opinions on this one. Too. Okay, so here's my here's the number one reason: Satan is not God. Satan cannot be. Wait, I mean, wait, you retell? You mean to tell Hot me? Takes here at Cross Street. I know we're we're not Satanists, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Here's the thing, though. Satan's not God, and God is the only one who can be everywhere at the same time satan is a being created by god just like me and you except of course you know angel has a little bit more power but he is still one being made by god therefore he is bound to one place at one time so here i would i would agree completely because satan is not omnipresent okay and I, I you may have another another thing but let me let me give I guess a rebuttal and a defense, but I agree. I agree completely. But yet, Satan has other dudes with him. The third of heaven oh, yeah. fell. So, but vicariously, they are working through. Satan is working through them. So, I guess you could make a defense and saying. But see, that's where I always go through because the demons, absolutely. I mean, you yeah. Know, why? How else are you getting tempted and stuff like that? Or you know, people want to say like, oh, like something's possessed. Satan's possessed him. No, a demon's probably possessed him. That's. 100% legit. That's a whole different conversation, though. Devil's got bigger fish to fry than me. But, yes, and people saying that Satan is targeting them by literally Lucifer himself. Is your ego that big? Yeah. How important <laughs> do you really think you are? Oh, my car didn't start this morning. I was late to work. I got a flat tire. I My shower wasn't hot. My coffee was cold. Oh. You know, just Satan's after me, man. Satan's out to get me. Okay, Karen. I'm sorry if there's a, I'm sorry if there's a Karen listening. I don't think there is, as far as I know. But I mean, just let me get on my little Sopra box for a second. Like, you're not that important there, brother, sister, whoever you might want to say you are. It's you're not. I agree. I I don't even want to think that. Who's even some of the famous? 
preachers we've talked about, Joel Osteen or something like that. I don't, you know, I don't even think some of those guys maybe, maybe has had one interaction that, that they obviously probably didn't know, but maybe Satan tried to work his hand in there a time or two. You know, just because you got somebody who is reaching, I don't, I don't know how serious we can really take this part, but like reaching millions of people, like, yeah, that's kind of a big deal. But Karen just showing up to Bible study once a week with two other people. The devil the devil gave me a flat tire. Oh, he gave me a flat tire. My coffee was cold, and I just, it's been a bad day. I can I can see that. But I, I know that Matthew's got something, and I agree with this, and I think you probably would too, but like, what's why do you not like this statement as well? Well, I've got to choose my words carefully because I could do an entire episode well, over this by myself easily because I the theological weeds that I want to get in on this are insane, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it simple here. Limit them. We give way too much credit to Satan. And the, oh, I, yeah. I'm coming at this kind of from the, the same sort of argument that you're saying with uh, – that you, Mason, are saying uh, with people thinking that they're so important that Satan's coming after them. I'm going to come at it kind of from the reverse direction, but same mentality of like, why do we think that Satan is all that? Like we literally treat, it seems that that phrase is literally treating Satan as like the anti-God. He's not, this isn't some yin or yang situation. Like Satan's lost. Like Satan lost the battle. There is no, lost, there lost is the no battle. Yeah. Like there, there is exactly. There is no battle. Like he already tried. He so, failed. So what's us to think that Satan actually punctured a hole in your tire? What if that's just, some random nail that just happened to be there. Satan placed it there. Now, y'all, you can tell I'm really tore up about this. Like, yeah, it, I, I, it, like I, I've literally got images in my mind of people who have said this. <laughs> and because I'm me, obviously, I, I got to quote the uh, the great Christian deathcore band, Impending Doom. Uh, I can't remember which song it is because uh, I've listened to too much of their stuff. Uh, but the quote is, the devil isn't the king of hell. He's just a chief prisoner that fell. Ooh. Like that true true statement right there. It is metal, true. Metal, metal preaching the word. Amen. I mean, yeah, he doesn't rule it. He's just going there with everybody else. And I think the, the, the media tropes of Satan is completely false because, I mean, they place him. You watch The Simpsons. You watch anything. Like, he's in, he's on his throne in hell with a pitchfork and he's like, I'm causing all this stuff, you know. But, yet yeah, that's his domain. That's not our place to be for eternity. But, but Matthew, what exactly are, are you saying? Because I think you've got some scripture to back it up, well, too. Well, what I'm about to say— uh, I was kind of teeing it up with the impending doom quote there, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hit it out of the park here with a quote from my boy Paul, uh, because here in the book of Galatians chapter five verse seventeen, Paul says, "For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's almost like we as human beings are fallen, and we are per- perfectly capable of sucking without the help of Satan coming with uh, rolling out the red carpet and be like, hello." I would like to ruin your day. No, we can ruin our own daggum day. We don't need you, Satan. I'll, I'll, I'll suck all by myself. That's my thing. That much. goes back to like we give we give devil we give the devil too much credit of saying, "Oh, dang it, I just lied." Oh, the devil they tempt me to lie. Yeah. I was like, "That's your own daggum fault. You're the one that sinned. Yeah, like you're the one." This boy. Yeah, and so it's like you're giving your, you're giving the devil too much credit for one, but then two, you're putting yourself it's like, "Well, I'm not that bad." That gum, you're a sinner, man. And isn't that what Satan really wants? For you to just blame him for everything, so you never take accountability. Uh, um, take accountability. Well, for that's your part actions? of like uh, uh, redemption is acknowledging your faults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if we 
do not place any fault on ourselves, then can we truly ask for forgiveness of those faults? Yeah. Now, reality check. Satan's real. Yes, and I want to take a half a half step back, literally just a half step. I ain't going all the way back, <laughs> and just say, Satan has power. Satan, to say he, he does yeah, not he have is power powerful. Is he is powerful. Ignorant, and just flat out stupid. Yeah. He's got more power than us three combined could ever imagine. You know, he's got he could have power over us, but the thing is, we've got something that's got him on a leash tied down with a boot on his face. You know. The Almost Spirit. literally, depending on how you read Revelation. Yeah, Revelation, I mean, just pretty And Genesis <laughs> chapter 3, verse 15, a hill uh, shall crush the head of the serpent. But continue. Yeah, right. So, I mean, the Spirit's going to put the boot down on him. So, like, but the thing is, is a person without that kind of protection? Yeah. I, you know, because, I mean, I believe the Spirit is, like, also protecting us from evil things. That those people, the people who are not children, as we just discussed a couple minutes ago. Ah, ah we're segueing. Or not segueing, we're referencing. I don't know. Whatever, English. Those people are in very dangerous situations. But Christian Karen, who just thinks Satan's out to get her, if you got the spirit with you, I think you're fine. I think you're fine. It's just your sinful nature is just kind of coming out a little bit. Yeah. I mean, if you As y'all said, we stink. Yeah. We, if you we, if you drive over a nail, like, that's just... That's just an unfortunate thing that happened in your day. Like if you if you have terrible self control, that's that's not Satan. That's free will. So mine, my next one, is that God won't give you more than you can handle. And I think this is biblically wrong. And let me explain this why. Let me explain. Let me explain. Let me explain. Because I think this can be a uh, plainly case of mistaken identity of a scripture. I think this text can be taken way out of context. So this is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And this is when it comes to the temptation of the devil or temptation of sin or whatever the case is. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. So that statement being said there what Paul says is saying all sin that is placed upon you someone has been through before and has defeated that sin you're tempted or 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 pornographic material becomes before you guess what someone's defeated that through the help of God there is drugs right in front of you guess what someone has overcame that with the help of God so there's no new sin I'm sorry to tell you but you can't invent one if you can that'd be interesting but don't do it as it continues, but God is faithful. And this is where people get this mistaken identity going on. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. So God knows who we are, correct? He's omniscient. We've, we've already established this, that he's omnipresent, that he's omnipotent. He's all these things. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our struggles and he knows our pain. Scripture even says in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 that he knows us before we were even born. So he knows all of our faults and our weaknesses and strengths. So this is why he allows difficult things to come before us. And I'm going back to not what the verse says, but what the statement is stating. The statement is stating that God will not give you more than you can bear, basically. But that is not what God does. God will actually give you more than you can handle. And the reason why is so that you can rely on Him. So you can trust 
on him instead of you relying on your own ability. And he does it multiple times throughout scripture. I mean, dadgum, he gives Moses a stuttering buffoon, the ability to lead people out of Israel, you know, thousands upon people that doesn't make any sense. He gives them more than he could handle. Look at Gideon. He dwindles them down to 300 against tens of thousands. He basically places him in a, basically a more than you can handle situation, but because he trusted God explicitly, God will lead them through it. And I'm thinking of you because I know the next one that, that, that you've got coming up soon here. But the text does not say God will not give you more than you can handle. The text says you will not be tempted. There's a difference. You will not be tempted more than you can handle. And understand that God is not a tempter. In James chapter 1, verse 13, James says that God does not tempt. Don't dare say God tempts. But he is sovereign. He has everything under control. He will not allow you to be tempted by something that you can't handle. And he gives us an escape route from that temptation. So that nail, you know, maybe it was a way for you to not get in a fender bender and cuss somebody out or get so mad and get a hatchet and hatch them up and go to prison for life. I mean, that might be a way that he gives you an escape. I don't know. But Jesus is, Jesus basically says it in the Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this statement that says God will not give you more than you can bear, that's completely false. He explicitly does that all the time in scripture that he places people in impossible situations so that they can overcome it if they trust in God. But the, 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 the state of the matter is, is that you will not be tempted more than you can handle. You can Every temptation that comes before you, you can, God, has, God, with his faithfulness and his sovereignty, you can accomplish that goal with his help, that you can overcome that temptation with him. That's what the text says, not God won't give you more than you can handle. Any rebuttals, any statements of disagreements or thoughts? I won't simply because... My quote is so close to that that it might as well be the same one, so I'll, I'll just kind of jump in with my part after, if uh, Mason has anything to say about it. At first, I wasn't with you, but you also didn't share everything, of course, because we weren't recording when we first talked about this um, off air. Now, I'm 100% with you on the one, Satan, or not Satan, whoa, we've been talking about Satan too long. Not good. <laughs> we better oh, not give him credit. The devil's trying. Oh, he's, he's getting us. Get get anyway. <laughs> Now that I think I'm not important anymore. <laughs> um, God definitely will not tempt. That's 100% fact. And he will not allow us to be tempted more than we can handle. Absolutely. I was, when we first talked about this, Tanner, because, I mean, we've been sitting here talking the whole time, and I know you, y'all that are listening doesn't know this. But when we first had this conversation a couple of minutes before we started recording, we touched. I touched on the fact that I thought they were the exact same thing. And I still think that they are very, very, very similar. But now that you've kind of explained it in depth, I see how they're different because I, I am with you. And what I wanted to talk about was how, yes, we will be given some things more than we can handle. And you used perfect examples. I actually was going to use a couple of those, like Gideon and, um, I mean, Moses was led. But David and Goliath, there's another one. Yeah, David was not capable to, to defeat Goliath at all. But he had to rely on God to do it, you know. It wasn't because he was an expert sling thrower. I mean, yeah, he was good. I mean, he kind of had to be. His life really depended on it. But to go fight a warrior that was known throughout 
Lord knows how much land, area, regions, maybe even nations. A little kid's not just going to take him down by luck. So I wonder what his brothers probably thought. Man, God gave him more than he can handle. So I'm with you on the fact that he will allow us into situations that we are not capable of on our own so that we have to rely upon him. But I'm also still in the firm fact that he will allow a way out for his people. In, in what context, though? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious. He's definitely the way out. Yeah. And there, I don't know. Maybe mm. this is just con- conf- mm. conflicts within me. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say I'm right. Well, I'm, I, This I'm, is just 100% personal belief that, like I said, I'm still trying to piece together. Well, let me just take a theological monkey wrench and just smack you upside the head with it. Because I'm, I'm going to, unless, Tanner, you've, you've got anything. Okay. I'm, I'm going to come in with... My quote that is so incredibly close to that one that the arguments kind of go to both of them. So let me read mine. It says, if God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it, which I think has kind of the same. Uh, I know I've used the word five million times already. It's got the same mentality behind it, but the quotes aren't like word for it the same and do have some diff- different applications that I will cover. Uh, but a bit of scripture that I think kind of um, challenges what you just said there comes from Acts chapter 7. Verses fifty-six through sixty. Are you guys familiar with uh, with Stephen? I know that guy. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he went up against the uh, the religious elite and gave them quite possibly just the hardest diss track of all time. Like went from uh, the Old Testament describing this is this is how you have disrespected God through your actions. Just just dropped the mic on them so hard it left a steaming crater. And what was their reaction? Well. Stephen says in verse 56, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, the religious elite, and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. (laughs) And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, as with all these phrases, they come with a bucket load of caveats because on its face, that's not necessarily an incorrect statement, that if God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. What I want to challenge within that phrase is what does it mean he'll bring you through it? Because I think the mentality, again, behind that phrase and and behind uh, what you were saying, Tanner, God won't give you more than you can handle. We're trying to put our our mortal constrictions on the way that God's plan functions. What do you mean by you'll make it through it? Did Stephen make it through it? He got stoned to death. Like in, in what universe does the average person, when they're going through struggles, be like, God, get me through this. And death is an option that they're putting in their head when they say that. Like who... Who does that? I'm pretty sure most Christians don't think of that as a yeah. valid option when they're praying to God, like, Lord, get me through this. I, I trust your plan. I, I trust what's going to happen. Uh, I pray that you'll help me get through the storm. I don't think your average individual, when they say get through the storm, think throw me out of the boat and let me drown is an option there. But it might. Does that mean that God's plan isn't perfect? To quote my, my boy Paul, who was referenced as uh Saul in that that scripture there by no means by no means I think that we try to put God into 
our own little box here that allows us to understand his workings and, and his mysteries. We don't, we don't like this, this unknown stuff. We don't like to be in situations where we, we don't know what's going to happen next. So in these situations where, um, like, like with, the, uh, with the Goliath story, is that really a, a way out there? What, what, who, who would hope for that? Who would pray like, Lord, Lord, help me uh, to, to enact your will. Okay, fight this giant. Like, do you think David was expecting that? I know that's an extreme example, but what what's that look for? David was the one that wanted it. Well, I'm, I'm talking more about mentalities here. I guess that wasn't the best example in the world. I'm, I'm trying to link here, and that was kind of a <laughs> failure there. So, no, I, but what you brought up, it definitely... I'm I'm a lot more on board with what Tanner said earlier. Now it's just me being, like he said, a hopeful universalism. I was just being a hopeful escapist, I guess, of mm. yeah. troubling situations. And just, for the record, yes, I am aware that like Daniel wanted that fight. Daniel, uh, Dan, dadgummit, David. I'm sorry, <laughs> you got me flustered there. Cause I I didn't mean to say like yeah. did he want that. I'm talking like the average person when they're in that situation. Do you think that they would want to take on Goliath? No, they'd want to tuck the tail between the legs and run. Like I was talking about the average person. I mean, I can't even get his name right, so no, yeah, I, I got you. Just I was just, I, yeah, no, my personal thoughts, or whatever, is just really hopeful. Hopeful universalist? No, not at all. Not <laughs> even close. Don't don't throw that at me, please. Ew. Anyway, uh, vomiting aside, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, bringing up the story of Stephen and we hear a lot of others we have a friend uh, that is a missionary in several other countries talking about how they'll go out and train local preachers younger guys you know roughly our age probably maybe a little bit closer to mine the old old geezers and uh, <laughs> they'll go out and start preaching in their local towns and stuff and come back beaten yeah, I mean, is that necessarily to say that that's God's will, or is that God's escape, or some? You know, some of we would, some might even be killed. And it really makes you think that no, that, I mean, yeah, that probably is a way out, according to God, because I mean, God's not tied to this earth. I know we like to think of it just because we are, or we're physically tied to this earth. But when our time on this earth is done, we're going somewhere. I think we get God's will and God's sovereignty confused. Those terminologies, yeah, because I think so. God's sovereignty to, to those in the theological sense, because, I mean, these are important terms. I think we need to understand that sovereignty is defined by that God is 100% all the time under control of every situation. But that doesn't always mean that he has his finger in every situation, saying that he, he is causing and contorting situations to fit the desire, the desire, and the need that needs to be done. Not saying that he doesn't, like with the case of of, uh, of Stephen. He was within God's will completely. He was faithful to the end. He preached the gospel to the end, and I think influenced Saul, which later became Paul, in that situation. And that is totally God's will, and God was completely in control and sovereign with that. For Stephen to die. Who's to say? Mm -hmm. Because when you have to sit down and think about it, like it was a win-win for Stephen. Yeah. So yeah, while it's very gruesome and brutal, and I mean, yeah, he was <clears throat> killed. You also have to think now, you know, he's getting to enjoy the things of heaven. But he, like you said, probably making Paul witness that at the, at the time, Paul, 
uh, or Saul, sorry, at the time Saul witnessed that, if he hadn't have, there's a, I mean, there is a chance, and we don't know this for sure, obviously, but I mean, there is a chance that he would have never became Paul. It could have been part of God's will for Stephen to die. Yeah, and if, I mean, and that's a sad truth, that really is. But then that place is, is that my will or is that God's will? And I think this is one thing that we need to, especially with the COVID thing that we've been through with the past year, is that I think I've seen a lot of people's faith shaken to the core of questioning God's reliability is that that when it comes to the pro- prosperity gospel, the faith and, uh, uh, and the word of faith movement, is that, oh, I've got COVID. If I only trust God enough, if I trust God enough and I pray, he's like, allow this to be gone, then I know it's going to be gone. What's going to happen when it doesn't go away and it kills your mom and dad? What if it doesn't go away and kills your whole family and you're only one left? It's like, I thought I had enough faith. I thought I, I thought I thought was God's will for me to, to live and prosper and be wealthy and healthy. What's going to happen is that you're going to doubt God and doubt his will and doubt his sovereignty. And in that case, that's, the found, that's a foundational crux, a, a point that God is completely under control. And so I think we need to remove our will out of the, the scenario and place God's will into mine and understand that, okay, no matter what happens, he's brought me to it. But that doesn't always mean that he's going to bring me through it the way that I want it to. All right, so my final one I've got for us. Matthew's ready to, you know, cry in the throat over it. But I, me and Tanner talked about it a little bit, and apparently Matthew was in here, so I don't know what he was doing but just apparently he didn't preparing hear to john wick you with this pencil yeah he's getting ready to stab <laughs> me with the pencil my last one is the bible is written for us not to us matthew's pouting over here by the way he is he's just got the <laughs> uh, he's got his mask on so i can't see but i'm sure that bottom lip's just curled over yeah yep, there yep, 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 yep. <laughs> but okay here's my thing about it it's not that i am disagreeing about what it says Dang, i'm right I am disagreeing with how people use it. People will use it as an excuse, especially a lot of pastors and preachers that I have heard, mostly from, like I said, other denominations from our, our own. But there are some within ours that I think will probably use it too. Um, they will use it as an excuse to kind of overlook a certain passage, or they'll use it as a way to kind of manipulate what Scripture is truly saying. They'll say, the Bible's not written the Bible wasn't written to us. It was just written for us. So they'll overlook a lot of things that, yeah, in today's culture may not make sense, but it's a really good mm-hmm. moral, uh, you know, moral ethic to have. Like the 613 laws of the Old Testament, gone. But a lot of them still are really good moral ethics that should be practiced. Now, that doesn't mean like we live by the old law. No, of course, we live by so the... So if uh, in, in the middle of a fight and your wife grabs me by the nads that we need to cut her arm off, right? That's I a law. Mean, that's a valid response. <laughs> <laughs> if we're going to go that extreme, huh? Uh, Anyways, continue. Sorry. To say that... I was trying to think of one of the laws. I don't even have the laws memorized. Matthew, what's one of the... <laughs> what's all the laws? Name them all. <laughs> Uh, well, when a, man, we're, we're going to sound so sexist with these being the two laws that we quote, but whatever. Uh, when a woman is going through that, uh, that time of the month, you need to lock her in a shed for a week. Okay. Not one I was expecting to come up. Well, I mean, okay. 
Uh, I forget that's one of your favorite Well, you got to keep in mind the ones that I have, like, ready to go out of the chamber are, are not the, the ones that ones. challenge people on, like, the whole Leviticus law argument because well, I'm a big fan of discussing I'm, Leviticus like, I'm not trying to advocate for it at all, but I'm just trying to say that that is one of the prime examples that, yeah, a lot of those laws are per- kind of stupid. No, not really. But Archaic. I mean, they had, yeah, they had, they had their purpose, but you got to think of the time and the people. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The time and the people. They were extreme, but some of those are still really good. Because Jesus, he says that I come not to abolish the law, but I come to fulfill it. <laughs> yes, uh, one man married to one woman, one spouse. I think that is a good moral to have. People overlooking it, like, and you have some people, and I'm not going to call out their names anymore, having more than one wife. And thinking, you know, that's just 100% fine. I, I believe that God's called us to one person, and you were to stick with one person. You know, because then you just start thing, saying that the marriage that God is supposed to have combined you two with is just kind of like, eh, because then I'm going to be combined with this person, this person, that person, that person, this person, and about two other more. Because we saw how polygamy was such a great thing and caused no family difficulties, right? That, that was sarcasm, by the way. I mean, you can't. Yeah. That and in full honesty, like the, the law for uh, having a, a woman be isolated during the time that she's on her period, like that sounds barbaric to us. And I mean, ain't it though? But I'm just going to let y'all imaginations fill the blank on why it might have been intelligent to keep her away, away from the men during that time. Like it was, it was a while ago, different culture. And those people were dumb enough to doubt God fresh after he rained manna from the sky. So let's go ahead and just assume. I the mean, worst it's not hygienic, uh, you know, for sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah. And uh, I mean, blood and sexual fluid yeah. is one of the fastest ways to contract any kind of disease and we have modern responses to that now so that law is no longer really relevant to our culture but going yeah going back to i I totally agree but i've never actually uh heard you i heard people make the argument of saying like i I agree with the statement but people can take it in the sense that there's i think it's almost kind of like a fear of like okay this is kind of a weird thing in scripture so i'm going to overlook and say well it's not it's it's for a different time but the thing is though yeah, it's a different time, but yet that can still be some kind of some form of application through it. The Bible has stood the test of time. That is very obvious. But here's the thing that I mean, I'm not sure how you feel about this, but as a you know, as a preacher, I am pers- I do personally feel like there is a reason for everything inside of the Bible. I'm sure there is a lot of people that are going to disagree. I just got the bug eyes from Tanner, which is fine, but. That doesn't mean like we are supposed to just like 100%, you know, word for word, because, you know, then we're supposed to abide by the old laws. Then we're supposed to abide by Genesis. We're supposed to abide by Jonah, Matthew, Revelations. You know, that means you're going to abide by everything. You can't abide by everything in the Bible. A lot of it is a history lesson. But the thing, but what I am trying to say about the Bible is that they all have a purpose for something, even if it is just for history so that we know what not to do anymore. Everything in there is there for something. And if that's not the case, then I, I don't think God would have, one, allowed it to be written. Or two, uh, put together within what we call the Holy Bible and used for his word. You know, we say that the Bible is his living word. So if, if there's something in there that's not of use in some way, even the, you know, the gene- genealogy of, you know, all these people in Numbers uh Leviticus, all these crazy things, they have a purpose somewhere, some way, somehow. Well, uh, was it like one, one thing in specific? Um, I, I know in, in Mark, 
it's made mention that's not mentioned in any of the synoptic gospels, but in Mark it's only mentioned uh, in all of Scripture. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't know if you, you all know this, but in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested, Mark makes mention of a naked guy running through the garden. And that's just weird just to think, okay, so why in Mark but not in uh, Matthew and Luke? And, and, and John, why does it not make mention of this naked guy running through the garden? It's only Mark. And you would think, well, there's not really a, here, let me try to make a spiritual application here. But the reason why is that, like, our human brains, to me, this gives an apologetic and, a, you know, an evidence behind that this is this is a real event, is that how many in our, in our daggum minds are going to remember a naked guy going through the garden? Me, because that's just weird. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's just weird, guys. And so I think Mark, he remembered something just off the wall that something happened. And he just, uh, yeah, so Jesus got arrested and a naked guy ran right through the garden. And then the story continues. So, I mean, to me, that gives evidence. And even though it may be obscure, it wasn't written to us, per se. He was writing to the church in an early, because Mark is the earliest synoptic gospel that was written. It was written as evidence, but yet it was written for us to say, okay, we can use it for an apologetic saying okay this is a real life event and see that's what i'm saying like that shows evidence that a a human wrote that because i don't think god's just going to kind of make mention of some random naked man just running through not like people wrote this and stuff like little details like that proves that there are probably other people that can remember that naked man running around you know, probably not now. They're all dead. But if you had... Mark uh, just had ADHD or something. Yeah, he just... ADHD <laughs> or something, you know? He just got distracted, you know? Yeah. I mean, but I, I'm kind of with you. Like, who wouldn't notice that unless you just are completely not looking around unless Mark's just kind of like, oh, yeah, there she's just getting ready. What is that over there? You know, <laughs> something like that. I mean, because, I mean, there's people like that. We're people. But so, that go, that shows proof that those things happen. And I think little details like that are important. For that, yeah, I, mean, I don't know how important a naked man is, but I mean, just any other little just, detail, just, just evidential, saying that's a real vibe. But yeah. Matthew, I think me and you are on the on reason why we use this term, and I or use this phrase because I like this phrase to be me personally. Oh, I love it. And, and so, and I, th- I won't uh, steamroll on this phrase, but yet go ahead and, and explain why we think that it's a it's a, an appropriate term that is kind of on the other side of the fence of that that I, that I think we can swing a little bit. Well, the reason I got so I'm triggered by, by Mason having this being one of his quotes is because this is honestly one of my favorite, like, Christianese type quotes out there. Like, I reference it all the stinking time. And I heard it originally from the Bible Project, which I credit with a lot of my uh, theological learning. I use them as a, a reference quite a bit to help me uh, study the Bible. And the mentality behind it that I agree with is, again, like you have Paul's letters to the church. Who was he writing to? The, the churches that the books are named like obviously they, they are literal letters to churches uh what what who were the synoptic gospels written to well yeah that one that one was written to everyone 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 can read that um like the bible was written to a lot of different people for a lot of different purposes and i think that that isn't something that we should use to constrict to restrict to restrict what we get out of the bible we should use that information to guide us in our study of the Bible. So that way, like this, this is why I love uh, studying Leviticus so uh, so much. And by the way, just to clarify, in case anyone out there is going, Matthew Matthew is over here uh, quoting scripture incorrectly. I am fully aware that Leviticus doesn't literally say to lock a woman up during uh, her uh, time of menstruation. Like it, it says to to keep her isolated because there's all this uncleanliness going around there. I Blood mean, I, 
there, there was some hyperbole coming out of my mouth. Just want to make that clear in case anyone's crying heresy here. Because uh, I do love Leviticus because I think there's so much value to be found in it. Not because I'm reading all these laws and going, oh, we need, we need to follow that. When, when someone um, uh, uses the bathroom in their pants while they're riding a donkey, they need to wash that saddle off. Like, oh, there's gospel in there, son. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that to heart. It's not that I'm looking at these laws and going, oh, okay, we're, we're going to apply these to my life. We're going to apply this. No, no more shrimp for me. No more clothes made of more than two fabrics for me. Yeah, th this, this, is a, this is my testimony here. Why was it written? I think that acknowledging that the Bible wasn't written to us, but it still was written for us, challenges us to figure out, why does this scripture say this? What do I need to study to figure out why this was written? Who was it written to? What was the purpose behind it? And what can I learn from that? What can I learn about God in that God decided that this needed to be recorded? I think it, uh, that applies an extra level of challenge to encourage us to really Get in the weeds, not just take the, the Bible at face value and be like, okay, yeah, well, stay away from a woman during that time. Okay, agreed. Yeah, don't, don't eat shrimp. Like, take, it, get, take it a step further. Study. Challenge yourself. That, that's, that's what that phrase says to me. And I, and I understand, Mason, why you have problems with it. And you know what? I'll, I'll even agree with your disagreements. Because to be honest, I had never heard of that phrase being used in that context before. Like, that, that was news to me, so... I can see it to you. That is the mentality I think somebody should have with this phrase. Because, like I said, I don't disagree with it. And with a mentality like that, it is perfect. But I have I have literally witnessed yeah. people use it as well, an, an, an excuse. An excuse to just ignore what the Bible says. Yeah. And this goes back to the thing. It's like it's written for us. So what was that for? What is that thing that's written? And that's the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of him coming as the son of God, fully man, fully God to die for our sins and raising it on the third day. And then one day that he's going to return. That's the message. So what does it matter if I read from a different version of scripture? What's, what's, what's the difference because it was written to the, the, the church of Ephesus and it talks about that women should always have their heads covered. What if it matters if it's talk about Leviticus and you shouldn't put a mark upon your body? And we'll talk about that in future uh, episode of Is It Christian to Have Tattoos? <laughs> Stuff like that. But these things, the gospel is the center. All the other stuff is just su supporting characters and actors. And we got to focus on the gospel and, and, and focus on Christ. Yeah. It's like you were saying um, last recording. Tanner, that all scripture is important. There was something along those lines. And you asked that question, and I gave uh, an answer to that. And my answer remains the same, and it's relevant in this context, I believe, that acknowledging that the Bible was all written to someone that isn't me, literally speaking, yeah. finding out why that is, that allows me to like accept the challenge of numbers. Even though it's a glorified census, that book has utility. All the areas in, the, in Scripture that are lineages, that has utility. So well, figure out what it is. Yeah, and that's my point. Yeah. Like, they may not be as significant as John, like we dove into last season, but they serve a purpose somewhere. Yeah. Well, that's what, like I, like I may mention last episode, and I'm not going to parrot talk because I'm in copy, copy. But my thing within the past year that God's definitely showed me is that look for Christ everywhere. Because that's what Jesus did in the road to Emmaus. That he said, let me tell you where I was at. And the, old, the New Testament wasn't written yet. Let me tell you where I was at. So he's obviously going to the Tanakh and going to the old law and stuff like that. And so he's saying, this is where I was at. I was the temple. 
I was the covenant. I was the ark of the covenant. I was the I was the one the the serpent upon uh, the the bronze staff that uh, saved people from death. I was that one, and so he's showing himself all throughout Scripture. So that that's one thing that it's a good statement, but yet people can misuse it. This is all caveats. All right, time time for for my spicy one. We're, whew, the, spice. This, this this one is the source of a lot of headaches and blood pressure is spikes it, for me. Is this the one that we see ants post on Facebook? This is the one that I hear thrown at me all the stinking time. Oh. <laughs> Love the sinner, hate the sin. Wait, did oh. I, just, I think I saw this on a chest tattoo somewhere. Oh. Is this is this another one? Uh, okay. This one sounds spicy. This one hurts. This one hurts. It's it's one of those things that's it's a really it's a big one that I hear these days because of uh, whenever you get into to politics, like subjects get brought up that, that the church has strong thoughts on. Whenever you have people that that speak about people that are living a way that they disprove and that is disproved in scripture, don't get me wrong, but they take it too far. The cop out is always this phrase. Hey, love the sinner, hate the sin. I got no problem with them. They're just, their lifestyle's bad. But there is no love behind those words. That's what I'm saying. Never, never Don't hate anyone. the player, hate the game. You know, and, and I think that's a, another way of saying only God can judge. That sounds like yeah. another way of saying only God can judge that yeah. thing. Yeah, because don't get me wrong. This phrase literally is correct. Love the sinner, yeah. hate the sin. But I've never in my life Heard that phrase used, and I've heard it used a lot with love in mind. So who, who's saying? Okay, so you, so you're saying, saying people it? are misusing it, right? Who's saying? It? Is it the person that's? Is it the person that's presenting it, or the person that's receiving that statement? Person that's saying. Okay, so the person that's saying it, there's no compassion. Yeah, it's used as a cop out to like not be. Um, what's what's the word? To not have to answer for basically the hate that they're spewing. Okay. Because you have, and I, I know I brought up like the homosexuals in the church, but like literally any marginalized community uh, that might be doing stuff that the church disagrees with. Like let, let's say people that have like a drinking problem, for instance. Like people that will just hound on people for these issues that they have. That don't get me wrong. Like scripture does say stuff about that, and that stuff does need to be addressed. But you have people like trash talking these people in the church, being like, "Oh, that that person that they've been in church for for five years, but they're they're still doing that. They need to get their life right." Or like, "Oh, there are these people over here that are going to church, but you know they're doing this. They need to get their life okay, right." Okay, so like, okay, I say I say we're, it's um, the whole like because me and Mason, me me and Mason, I think we're kind of like. Where are you going? So I think it's more of like they're dogging the individual of their sin, but then they'll back up like, well, you know, love the sinner, yeah. hate the sin. And when so it's more of like they're just, trying to uh, uh, to justify their means yeah, of why they're angry. just hating on the sinner. Like it flies in direct opposition to when Jesus said, don't uh, point out the speck in your neighbor's eye when you have a beam in your own. Okay. Like, I mean, Jesus tackles that. That's the context that I'm talking about because that's the context I always hear this phrase. Like, okay. yeah, I just spent five minutes hating on the sinner, but you know, love the sinner. Well, hate I, the I sin. totally agree. How about you follow your own words, then, bud. Okay. See, I, I've not encountered. I've heard that statement a lot, but not used to how you're saying it. That's really? why. I, that's why. Yeah. That's why I was really confused because I was like. Uh, well, I can see it because I've 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 used this. I, I've not used that term, obviously, but I've made this the comment of like. 
passion without compassion is null and void. And I think that a lot of people, they can be passionate about, uh, you know, the gay, the gay community being within the church, or they can be passionate about alcohol or drugs, drug use, you know, the legalization of marijuana uh, and stuff like that. I don't think that's a topic this season. That'd be interesting. Uh, mm. But if you can have passion with, without compassion, then your conversation ain't going to get nowhere. Guess what? You're not going to reach nobody if you don't have compassion. Yep. And I also hear that used in reference when people are just talking about people that aren't Christians in general, which that baffles me because, I mean, it, to quote Preston Sprinkle for a second time in this episode, uh, obedience comes after acceptance. Like holding people accountable to rules that they're not even actively desiring to follow right now is kind of a weird concept to me in general. But just, just for the sake of getting some scripture in here, I want to, I want to quote some scripture uh, to address this phrase in the way that I'm uh, talking about it. And this scripture comes uh, from Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. So I kind of talked about this story already, but here's the other half. Um, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So that's just going back to what I said, like, every time I hear this phrase used, there's no love behind it. It's used as a cop-out because the person just spent the last couple minutes hating on sinners, when that is not what Christ calls us to do. That is not a love-first attitude. That is a condemnation-first attitude, and that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing in that scripture there. Like, it's just, it's something that I personally just, I hear a lot of it. And I know a lot of it is because I typically engage in conversations where that kind of stuff happens because for any of the un- uninitiated, I love talking politics with people that I disagree with, and I disagree with everyone. So, so let, me, let me ask this. I think one of, the, one of the individuals that I think that has presented this very well is Ray Comfort, and he, he's a, an ev- evangelist-type person that goes out and has conversations with people on the street and has good uh, discussion with people. And I, I'm 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 just I'm just kind of thinking about this. is there such thing as graceful tactics to reveal God's judgment against somebody to reveal the sin? And I think there's a way to do that, and I think that you know, like I said, I think Ray Comfort's one of those. I think you can reveal someone's sin without really pointing. I think God is the one that reveals it. You're not the one that say, reveals it. It's not our responsibility. We've talked exactly. about this with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts, yeah. not people. Like one of the things He says is like, "Do you think you're a good person?" And, I mean, nine times out of ten, nine times out of ten, every individual on the planet Earth is going to say, yeah, I'm a good person. And then he goes down basically the Ten Commandments and says, okay, so have you ever lied before? Well, you know, even just a little white lie. Yeah, I've, I've lied. Okay, well, have you ever stolen anything like a piece of gum out of your mom's purse or like a $10 bill off the floor or something like that? You know, like, well, you know, I've done that before. It's like, okay, well, have you ever used God's name in vain? Well, yeah, I've, I've used I've used the Lord. That's blasphemy. Okay, well, that's a that's a serious crime. He says, and he says, okay, so now you're telling me that you are a liar, a thief, and then he also makes mention: Have you ever, left, ever lusted out the flesh? Well, yeah, of course, I'm a male. I lust after the flesh. Well, now you're a liar, you're a thief, you're adulterer at heart, and you are a blasphemer. And by God's judgment, you are destined for hell. You are destined for judgment. So by that, God is saying that you are a sinner. So then, right then and there, I think that's gracious. To say, okay, you're not condemning condemning them at all. That's God condemning you, and I think there's a way to present it. It's all about tact, tactfulness, 
And I, and I think you're right. I think a lot of people present God's judgment as hellfire and brimstone. You better go ahead and smack my Bible against your forehead or, you know, what, what, what the case may be. Yeah. So I'm genuinely curious because it really seems like we've had different experience uh, with this phrase being used because, like I said, I have never heard this phrase being used with love coming from the person that's saying it. So, like, I want to accept some rebuttals in the form of y'all telling me, like, how you've heard this used the right way. Because, Mason, I I think you specifically said, like, you haven't heard it used the way that I'm talking about how I've heard it used. Yeah, so so you're saying, like, people will use it as a cop-out after they are literally bashing the center. Yeah, so, no, mostly where I get it from is we have pretty good Wednesday night discussions, I think, um, in our young adults class. And it's uh, we'll go around talking about, like, certain subjects that are touchy within the church or just touchy within the world. And we'll talk about, like, okay, so, like, how should a Christian address this? And it's kind of like... I mean, just because we've already brought it up, like how such how should someone address a homosexual, a gay person? I don't know how they want gay. to be addressed. They, it's preferred gay. That's okay. what they're like. I've been breaking the rule over here. But, okay, yeah. so like, how would somebody, how should a Christian properly uh, like approach a gay person? And it should be out of love, because I mean, we look at Jesus and the woman at the well, someone who is, I mean. I don't think it's specifically mentioned, but I probably referenced or like hidden text an adulterer. Oh yeah, it was it was pretty much oh, okay, out, pretty so. much spoken like like the way scripture can be worded sometimes. But anyway, she's been with multiple men, and the one that she was with at the time wasn't even her husband. That was very clear. But how did he still respond to her with grace? W- with grace and with open arms. It wasn't like he just kind of pushed her out of the way. He actually went there out of the way on his journey so that he could speak. Didn't he say he had business in Sychar? I think he said, like, I have a purpose here. Yeah, he Correct? he said, like, because the, the disciples asked, why did you want to go there? He's like, I have, like, he said, he's just like, I need to go there. <laughs> and more or less, it was to speak to this woman. So we are not to just, Christians, we Christians are not to just cast them aside. No, we are to treat them with love because their sin is no more than my sin, your sin, anyone else's sin is sin. The things about Christians that really suck is we like to put labels on sin and number them great, worst to uh, not too bad, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not okay. Uh, you know, I'd sit here, I'm going to sit here as a little preacher that I don't know much and tell you that that's not, <laughs> that's not okay to do, to label something that only God has control of. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to sit here and say I'm perfect. I will gladly list off things that I'm terrible at doing that a, that a Christian should not be. And just like I'm sure you guys could do the same for yourself. But it's loving that person, loving the sinner. But, of course, you're not going to support the gay or the, the homosexuality within that person. You're, you, you want the best for them, and it, it's to, to stray away from that or at the very minimum not act upon it. It's just like a, a teenage boy with lust. You want them to stray stray away from it, but at the very least, not act upon it. You don't want them to act upon sin. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want a, a murder going around just killing people, or you don't want a thief going around stealing things. I feel like I've I've done my little rant. I'm cooled <laughs> off now. I'm fine. Yeah, well said. And I'm and I'm absolutely like prepared to agree with that because I'm again like I just haven't really heard it used yeah. in, the now, in the context you said yeah using it as a cop out not cool not cool at all but as just the overall saying I think we kind of 
we probably should have flip flop versus or not versus, but catchphrases. We'd been all right. You you were very adamant about mine, and I was I was pretty. Well, I, like like we said before, I think we've got one more. But yet, I, like we've said before, is that all these? I I would say all these is for exception of like maybe one, that um, they all have a T of truth in them, and they have some lividity behind them. But yet, it's just the way they presented it and where they're said. The catchphrase becomes a very weak and unstable thing for a Christian to say, I guess. Yeah, it really just depends on the heart of the person that's yeah. saying it. I'd say at least two of them. We ain't all children and Satan ain't out, ain't out to get you carrying. Well, I was also thinking... <laughs> I was, think, I was thinking Job of... Uh, says it, it's correct. Yeah, and if you're Job, you're fine. All right. I was Job I was thinking uh, I was thinking of the one... Uh, if we don't sin, Jesus died for nothing. That's the one I was thinking of, but... Hmm. I think that was just blatantly... That's just idiotic. It is. I, I don't even count that one. So our last one, last catchphrase, and I think uh, this is one that I—it's I, definitely I hear a lot of people say, and it's—it's it's very uh, irritating when I hear it. And, and and to be honest, I've I've used it before in the past, and I think this is one reason why it's irritating to me because it's it's one that kind of speaks to me because I've used it. So the last one is everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. So the premise of this statement is that God places you in every situation or every situation is placed before you for a purpose. And I think, to be honest, some of these, they kind of, they very overlap a lot. A lot of the things that we've said, they overlap, but yet each one has special significance behind them. So this sounds biblical, correct? Everything happens for a reason, but because it sounds good and sounds right doesn't mean it technically is. Uh, the idea becomes problematic by taking free will and placing it with determinism in place of it. And so determinism, and I want to define some of these terms, determinism is dangerous because it removes free will and places the actions of humans caused by an external force that removes human responsibility. And a lot of the things that we've talked about uh, in this episode is that uh, we don't want to take responsibility of our actions. And that's what determinism is, is that it's placing everything is fate. Everything is by by chance, by an external force that I don't have to take responsibility because it's already been determined for me. So you've got two ends of the spectrums of determinism, that everything is predestined to be something. You know, the underwear that I per- put on is, is, is pink. It's determined that I wear this underwear. There's something, it happened for a reason, okay? And that's one thing that people would say, anything happens for a reason, uh, you know, free will to choose whatever happens, and then open theism, basically saying that God doesn't know all, and then everything just happens by chance, and he just works with whatever happens, which is a, a total heresy. So the topic of free will can be a little dicey in a lot of theological realms and doctrinal discussion between Arminianism and Calvinism, but we're not going to discuss that. But my personal convictions, and this is where I tend to disagree with with, with this statement, is that my personal convictions is that I have seen through Scripture and through my own personal walk, too, is that I think both of these have merit between the Calvinist and Arminianism, okay, between uh, things happening by providential things, providential happenings of God divinely intervening, and free will, and I have the choice to make, and that's my choice, and I'm going to lay my—I made my bed, I'm going to lay in it type deal thing. And I see this by God— throughout scripture placing people on a path and God works with them within that path. And so you see this in Job. Job, God allowed this to happen in his suffering. You see this in Jonah. Basically, Jonah had no choice but to go to Nineveh. 
I mean, he jumped. He got God basically placed him in Nineveh. You see this in Paul. He had no choice but to respond to Christ on the road to Damascus. So you see all through Scripture that God basically, there's a path of God's will, correct? The best path before us that God can see the, the best possible chance of you worshiping God and doing His will. We have a choice to go down a different path as well. And I think that uh, uh, Dr. Robert Piccarelli says in his book, Grace, Faith, and Free Will, is like there's a path, a fork in the road. You have a choice between A, B, and C. You choose A, but God's best path that he wants you to go is C. You choose A. God will work with you on some sometimes, and God will work his will within the choice that you have made. And it's like, okay, well, the, the thing that you have that you have chosen, I'm going to try to work the best. If you have if you have faith in me, I'm going to work in your life even then. But there are some times, and this is one thing that my personal convictions that I think I've seen throughout Scripture in my own personal life, that God does intervene and does force someone on the sea path. And like, okay, no, you don't need to be here and just pick and drop. And I think you've seen that through Scripture, especially with Jonah. I mean, even if you want to take this as a little story or allegorical story, and I mean, scholars have debated about this, but it doesn't matter. The, the story does apply. So here's my biblical context behind this. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and this is where I think God's sovereignty, like we've already talked before, is important, that he is completely under control. Romans 8, 28, it says, We know that all things work together for good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And I think that when that statement says all things, good or bad, whatever situation, path that you decide to take, that God can work within that path to make his will be accomplished. And this is one thing with this statement. It's a fatalism type statement that everything that happens in your life between the nail in Karen's car that says that the devil has placed that there, that happened for a reason. What if that's just a daggum nail on the daggum road that it just hit your daggum tire? Daggum. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, it says, and I'm, I'm, I'm using just a, a portion of it, but it says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So the things that have placed before us, sometimes we can say, okay, well, that's something bad. But yet, what if God placed certain things before you that we may not even see as something God has done? we got to see it in the way that God can do something with this that is placed before us. Yeah, honestly, like I, I can't contribute any more to that than you just. I mean, does he want to? I mean, because I mean, especially with the point that is there no disagreement in the sense? Because I mean, this is where my, I, I do think that God does providentially intervene. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I'm just saying, yeah. like, there's nothing I could say that you didn't just cover. That was a very thorough, good response. So yeah, I, I agree. Because uh, this is where a debate in. Dang, I want to debate, but uh, this is where, like, within the the church, I think you do get a. Uh, a deterministic viewpoint between like, I don't want, like I said, I'm not going to get on the Calvinist side and the Arminian side, but you can on the Arminian side. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take my camp but on the Arminian side. You can get people that are so subscribing to, that was a weird, did you hear that? But I think on the Arminian side, you can get such a free will aspect that God never does intervene. So he is absent 
God from everything. So it's a deistic type of God. And then it can very cross into the realms of a dangerous realm of open theism that God is not omniscient and he doesn't know the path that you're going to take. So I think it's very dangerous. That or he just doesn't care. A lot of people yeah. will say that he just like, they're people, they're humans. They're, it's, they, yeah. they don't matter. Um, I'll be, I'll play a Matthew and play devil side and, and uh, contribute a little bit, just a little bit to the Calvinist. Cause I like to, I like to think of things like this a lot of times because people don't realize about like, I'll speak personally, uh, like as a free will Baptist, like, you know, what's the significance of a free will? And it's that, you know, that you have the choice. But the here, here's what comes in with a little bit of the Calvinist is saying that, like, God already knows. And what makes it, of course, a true Calvinist is what we know is that God has already decided that for you. No. But saying that God doesn't already know it, that's an issue because then you're saying he's not all-knowing. Uh, big issue there. Anyway, moving on from that is saying... God knows knows that these issues or these things that are happening are going to happen. But why do they happen? And I think that's where people get tied up a lot of things about, uh, you know, everything happens for a reason. They get tied, tied up about the outcome of what's happening instead of what caused it. We'll say that uh, God allowed this to happen so that I can be punished or God allowed this to happen. God allowed Satan himself yeah. to attack me. <laughs> so hey, that, Job. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, I could be taught a lesson or, you know, just whatever excuse you want to give out. It's like, but why did it happen? It's, it's, it's happening because of us fallen world. And I love what you said about, uh, what is it? Something meant for bad, but God meant it for good. Or what? What was meant for bad or evil? I don't. I don't know what you said right there. I forget that saying. Oh, uh, Genesis chapter fifty verse twenty says. Uh, I, I can't remember who said it, but uh, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Yes, and that I, I love that, and and this is one of those uh, biblical sayings that a lot of people can use out of context too. But used in the proper context, it's saying that there are bad situations that's going to come that you know, Satan and his demons might try to do, or just bad people in general because. Newsflash, news people are bad too. <laughs> no, not, not everybody's a good good boy and good little girl. Uh, there are some bad people out there, and they will try to do bad things to people. They will try to do bad things to Christians That's or you know, of any other religion. That's why there's persecution. But God can use something as horrendous as you know uh, Christians getting persecuted and turn around and use that in a good way and, and shine his light in some other form. Mm -hmm. And and it's only in a way that he can do it too. So. So I I think like, let's take it to an extreme. And I think that this is where I think this saying is dangerous is that like, look at the Holocaust. We see that is an awful thing that happened. Oh yeah. But what would, how, how awful would it be if I said, what? Everything happens for a reason. You know, God, God, God was person. God, God uh, put those Jews in that situation for a reason. It happened for a reason. People are just bad, bro. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about conspiracy theories about how people think that that was there for a reason, but yeah, to, but no, I'll try to avoid that. I don't necessarily agree, like disagree with the saying, but you're 100 percent right. People will, will try to use it for things like that, and that's just 
I think stupid like to say like things like that they just happen for a reason I think a lot of these phrases and catchphrases I think they need to be rewarded in the sense of like this one instead of saying everything happens for a reason I think we need to say something on the manner of look for God to bring purpose out of this reason or out of this happening and I think it's like where can I see God in this and I think one one uh, specific incident I, I remember uh, Nobel Qureshi is a, an apologist that died from stomach cancer a couple of years ago and he was like 33 or 32 years old young and one of the things that he was like uh, one of the videos that he posted of himself to tell you know social media um, that you know I'm, I got stage four stomach cancer I'm going to die. Like one of the last videos that he posted, he was basically on his deathbed and he was praying. He's like, God, I know that you're all powerful. I know that you are sovereign and you are completely in control. And I want you to heal me. I want to be healed from this. But if it is your will to heal me, then your name be praised. But if it is not your will to heal me, your name be praised. And so it's just like, no matter what, God needs to get the glory out of whatever reason mm-hmm. and whatever case that is placed before you, even if it's a nail in the tire or if I get stage four stomach cancer and everything happens for a reason. I'm sorry, but my life is, is, is not, is not so intertwined by what color underwear that I put on, you know? And I think CS Lewis, he points it out in mere Christianity and I'm probably butchering the quote, but just it's, it's the same premise. He says that basically all of humanity is written out on a book, like a rough draft of a book. God's perspective is like the author of that book outside, and he can read it from front to cover anytime that he wants to. And sometimes, as a rough draft, he can go in and make some changes if he wants to. And that's probably not a direct a direct quote, but the premise is, is that God is outside of our time. He knows what's going to happen, but yet sometimes he does intervene within that if he so chooses. But yet we cannot... like we've stated before in some of these quotes is that our will needs to be his will and we need to remove our will from the equation. You brought up something uh, just right before that. And it's talk- and it reminded me of a, f- of a friend that we knew from church camp, how uh, got a terrible disease of ALS and people will, will try to say that, Oh, things happen for a reason. Maybe that's a he- possibility. Maybe. I mean- but we see that he did, that our, our dear friend did, eventually pass away due to the disease but we saw that he had a very similar situation of the man that you brought up tanner of if i can be healed from this uh, great if not i'm still going to uplift uplift your name and as far as i know and as far as i can keep up and i tried to the best i could he done exactly that mm-hmm. i would like to say if for this statement to be true the answer to that, because I mean that's basically a question. Everything happens for a reason. So what's that reason? I think that answer is God get the glory. I think that's the answer. And like if if that's the case, every situation that is placed before us, we need to give glory to God, even if it's something crappy. And so I think if that's the statement that you want to stick your, you know, if that's something you want to tattoo you on your arm or something like that on your forehead, that's the answer to that statement. Is that God gets the glory? That's the reason why mm-hmm. I'm here. That's the reason this I'm placing. We try to look for the wrong reasons. Yeah, my reason. Yeah, my reason. What? Yeah, what makes most sense to me? No, it needs to be. What's God gonna get from it, or how's God work into this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, shoot, I said at the beginning of the episode that uh, when we were doing our drafts, our brainstorming for the all the subjects for season two. That this was the one that I was thinking. Can we can we really get a good episode out of that? Are you kidding? 
We're, we're knocking on an hour and a half here. So that, that was a good conversation. I did indeed learn some things uh, from this, as I always do. I mean, it's not that I ever doubt that I'm, that I'm going to learn anything from our sit down here. But hey, when we, when we butt heads together, good stuff comes out of it. And I'm, I'm really glad that we, that we have these opportunities. But that's, that's been cross training for this week. Join us again in another two weeks. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and call it here uh, to our listeners elect out there. We're going we're gonna to change the way that you look at the Bible. That's what we're going to do. That, that, that's, your, that's your sneak preview. But uh, as always, our social media links are in the description of the podcast. And we'll see you next week. Oh, I'm still trying to say next week. We'll see you in two weeks. But until then, Tanner, give us those magic words. Peace out.